0: Murray S. Davis was a professor of sociology at Northern Illinois University in the United States. In 1971, he wrote a paper analysing the success of what he called social theories, from Marx and Freud all the way through to Marshall McLuhan and R.D. Lang, and the factors that had led to their successful impact, wide circulation and continued discussion. He called this paper, That's Interesting. Davis's view was that the social theories that really made an impact and achieved that wide circulation were not successful just because they were true, but because they were interesting. And he defined being interesting in a very specific way. Interesting theories, he said, are those that deny certain key assumptions of the audience, while uninteresting ones are those that confirm key assumptions of the audience. Interesting theories are those which deny certain key assumptions of the audience, while the uninteresting ones are those that confirm key assumptions of the audience. So, look at Marx, for instance. Ownership is theft. Three words that deny certain key assumptions we might have previously held about what ownership did or didn't look like. Or Freud. Disgust is repressed desire. Hmm, that wasn't how I'd really consider disgust up to that point. So dull, in other words, is not just what people don't care about, it's also what they think they already know. So to make something interesting, Davis contended, you have in effect to subvert your audience's expectations. He went on to say, all interesting social theories constitute an attack on the taken-for-granted world of their audience. You have to attack what seems to be true and offer instead a perspective on what was actually true. And this, he says, therefore also needs to have repercussions. Because the theory is denied the significance of something they are routinely doing in their everyday life, they therefore need to be stimulated into some new kind of ongoing practical activity instead. And he concludes, to be interesting then, you have to not only really know your subject, you have to also know what your audience's assumptions are about it as well. So you can deny one or more of those assumptions and the more clearly you can specify what the assumption is the better you will be able to attack it and He proposed in finality that a new field be set up called the sociology of the interesting a study of the breakdown and build up of beliefs and the transformation of assumptions that would sit alongside the sociology of knowledge i'm adam morgan you're listening to let's make this more interesting from eat big fish and there's a lot to learn from the conversation with today's guests One of which is that the idea at the heart of the business that they founded and the podcast they've become famous for is a really good illustration of Murray Davis's contention. Sarah Ellis and Helen Tapa are the founders of a company called Amazing If, which is on a mission to make careers better for everyone. And their clients include Diageo, Microsoft, Levi's and the BBC. And they are perhaps best known as the co-host of the extraordinarily successful Squiggly Careers podcast, which has become something of a phenomenon. In the past eight years, they've done 368 episodes, they've got 4 million downloads and over 600 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Their two books, Squiggly Careers and You Catch You, have both been remarkable bestsellers. And central to the thought of Squiggly Careers is a denial of the previously assumed, that the notion of the career ladder as a relevant or useful way to describe what our careers are like anymore has gone. That sense embodied In the cliche of a ladder of progression or moving upwards in some kind of linear way, rung by rung, it just isn't the way the world works now. And if we continue to use that as our model, as an individual or as a company, we are completely misunderstanding how people's career paths are working. Instead today, our career is all about the squiggle. I love the energy and possibility bound up in that word. I think you'll find Sarah and Helen as fascinating as their idea. And we'll start off by talking about the origins of squiggly careers and the squiggle itself and move on then to discuss how they make something as difficult as discussing confidence issues more interesting, and indeed, how one can tackle dullness in a large organisation. Let's meet them. Sarah and Helen, fantastic pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great to be here.
0: So, But just before we start, what does dull look like in your world? What dull do you see around you and how pervasive do you think it is in in the kind of the business that you do and, and the world in which you move?
1: Good question. I think Dull in the world of career development looks like we're all sitting in a classroom. The classroom has no windows and there's someone at the front of that room reading from a script and clicking through lots and lots of slides. And there's no chance of escape. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like I'm talking from personal experience, but you know that's a story
2: for another day. There's a day. whole
0: sort of scary dull thing going on there, actually, which is <laughs> an emotion I hadn't seen. But that's fantastic.
2: I feel like mine's less about an environment that's dull, and it's more like a language. In that there are certain words that I see or hear. And it's almost like every time I see or hear them, I'm like, oh, come on, come on, everybody. I saw it today. Um, And in in, in the news, I was reading Management Today earlier, and one of the headlines was about somebody stepping down from their job. And I'm like, do we have to? Like this idea of this stepping up and stepping down being the only direction you can possibly develop in. And it, it happens in every headline when someone senior moves on from a role. And it happens in lots of career conversations. And I just get quite, I just think it's really language to talk about career development when there are so many more dimensions to what people can do and where they can go and how they can grow. And all we do is reduce it down to stepping up and stepping down. You can Obviously, the frustration is coming through, but every time every time I see that, it, it, I find it slightly frustrating.
0: You're both bringing very different but very strong emotions to this, which is very <laughs> promising for us rest of the podcast. So, so let, let's talk about the kind of birth of Squiggly Careers um, and and what was to come on to Amazing If a little bit later on as well. But clearly, one of the kind of key thoughts at the heart of Squiggly Careers is actually the old notion of the career ladder it's just no longer appropriate and that actually we need a completely different model. But when you started, presumably, you were really kind of swimming against the current in that stage. you Tell us a little bit about how that started, what it was born from in terms of your experience and indeed how you came up with the concept of Squiggly Careers.
1: So I think Helen and I had totally expected to climb the ladder. We were with the crowd um, and we were like, oh, that's our job to do and that's what success looks like. And really, it was a chance conversation one day with no intentions to break that ladder or do anything different but we were just reflecting on it just didn't feel right anymore it didn't reflect our day-to-day reality and we could see that we weren't the only ones and so it was a bit of a classic draw on a napkin moment where we were like oh it's not this sort of staircase ladder thing if it's not that what is it you know what is the alternative and that's where this idea of a sort of free-flowing squiggle where you develop in different directions came from we sort of we drew it we put it on a bit of paper And what's quite interesting is you said there about um, swimming against the tide. I actually think we got a very mixed reaction when we first started sharing Squiggly. So actually, when we were sharing it with individuals, so groups of people in a room and sort of framing careers and saying, our hypothesis is careers feel less like ladders now and more like Squiggles. We actually got a lot of nods. Mm. I think people got it very quickly. People who didn't get it and took a lot longer to get there were sort of more organizations Actually, when we first pitched our book, we got a lot of shaking heads and sort of like, oh no, it's this, is, this feels maybe too niche or this is not where things are going. And so from sort of certain audiences or certain places, I think people weren't quite ready for Squiggly. And that's quite interesting then,
2: because then you've got to decide if you had a bad mm-hmm. idea or do you need to persevere. Yeah. And I think and that was 10 years ago, that conversation. And as Sarah said, when it started to touch managers and companies, I think Squiggly was seen as a potential threat like if my employees are going to squiggle then they're going to leave whereas now our work 10 years later I think people increasingly see squiggly as an opportunity like we have a big program that we run called squiggle and stay which is about how organized create squiggly career environments where people can develop in different directions so they stay for longer and it's so interesting to see that shift in the time that we've been working on it where this word was sort of mm, not I'm not. Sure, we should say squiggly around here. And now it's sort of like, oh, actually, we want to say squiggly around here because it's actually a, it's a great thing. I was um, saw a post today uh, with Centrica, one of the organisations we work with, and they've given all of their graduates a copy of the Squiggly Career on day one, starting with a company. I don't think that would have happened Fantastic. ten years Fantastic. ago. Fantastic. No, definitely not. Well, uh, so it's- <laughs> no one let us write, write the book <laughs> let alone give it to their graduates
0: <laughs> so tell us about the word squiggly because squiggly is, is such a lovely word for all sorts of reasons we will come on to talk about but it's also it's a deliberately low status word isn't it it's a tonal shift really you could have called it the non-linear career arc or something which would have been a bit duller but I mean would have had a sort of higher status element to it but you're deliberately choosing a kind of much more informal almost kind of playful way of describing it tell us a little bit about How important that word has been, and why you chose that word rather than anything else?
1: I think the visual came before the word. And I think we are a very visual company. And actually, we sort of, I hope we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we sort of do take our visuals quite seriously and sort of how we uh, deliver our career development and we draw everything. So we haven't used a single PowerPoint slide in 10 years. Um, And we've been asked a lot, are you sure you can't put some slides up because everyone else is doing slides? And we don't, we live draw. We draw all of our ideas and our tools. Um, Not because we are incredible drawers and there is no sort of fake humility there from from either of us. Um, We are definitely good enough at drawing. But because we know that people connect with visuals, we remember them. They're interesting, they're fun, they're playful. And I think just this idea of like a career ladder just feels so formal And it's not very everyday, whereas if you ask people to draw their own career, like draw the shape of your career, I ask people at the start of loads of workshops, um, share a GIF or an emoticon that sums up your career so far. People are not sharing staircases and ladders. (laughs) They're sharing roller coasters or somebody, um, you know, navigating a park in different directions or a winding road. So I think all we did was kind of give a name to a visual that a lot of people... Recognize for themselves I think we gave people a word to describe what they were already doing
2: and I think from that has been this realization of the just the stickiness of language so we really care about losing the ladder and we really care about making learning last and squiggly helps with the ladder because people like squiggly and they want to be seen as squiggly and they want to do squiggly And language really helps with making learning last because we want to make it memorable and we want to make it very human and we want to put this into conversation. And so like, for example, one of the things we created was this idea of squiggly swaps, like taking this very ladder like language and shifting it to squiggly. So you don't talk about career plans. You talk about progression. You don't talk about your talents, your title, sorry. You talk about your talents. And um, I think squiggly was the start of us realizing If we can create a new language for career development that feels simple and sticky, and it does a lot of the hard work for us.
0: Well, one of the things I've I've loved, i mean, going back to your point a few minutes ago about the visual nature of you was, I remember, Sarah, you and I having a conversation a long time ago where you were talking about confidence gremlins and you'd just been exploring this idea about how do you help people with confidence and you were introducing this idea of confidence gremlins. And A, gremlins is such an interesting word to put alongside confidence, but then you were getting people to draw them. Tell us a little bit about that and again how helping people to visualize it themselves has kind of been helpful in the kind of work that you've been doing with people.
2: Um, So we work internationally, and I think drawings are one of those things that cross languages really, really easily. So we can be in a room with the grief people in Spain and they'd start drawing their confidence gremlins and everybody instantly understands what someone's talking about. Like my favorite exercise to do when we get to be in a room with people, and a lot, a lot of the time I'm virtual, so I, lo- I love this when you can be in rooms with people, is we create a confidence gremlin gallery. So everyone gets this really <laughs> large post-it and they draw their confidence gremlins, and and you know people have to kind of get over, my drawing's not very good. Well, not, neither are ours. We kind of set the bar pretty low <laughs> with what they look like. And then people will draw their confidence gremlin. So, for example, one really memorable one for me is someone drew a dummy, because they felt like they were too young. And so, the, you know, people will kind of articulate this fear in very different ways and they stick it up on a wall and people either instantly just get it and go, oh gosh, me too. Or they're really intrigued by it. And they're like, oh, tell me more about that. The fear factor, it's almost like as soon as they put pen to paper and they bring it to life and they put it on a wall, you suddenly go, oh, I'm not the only one with one of these. And a conversation starts because you've made something that has probably been going around someone's head for such a long time and it's felt so big and it's felt so scary. You've made it a squiggle on a piece of paper that we can suddenly talk about and either go, oh, me too. Or what does that mean? or I never knew that. I would never have known that. And suddenly getting it out of our head enables you to get help. And that might be helping yourself because you've suddenly gone, oh, I this has been actually holding back for quite a long time. Or it might be help from your colleagues who go, oh gosh, I'm in the same boat. Let's let's sort this out together. But that that moment, it doesn't matter what level somebody is or what job that they do, everybody has a confidence gremlin. And as soon as you put pen to paper, it becomes something we can do something about. And I, it always feels like a really powerful moment that I'm quite proud of when you see people talking about a fear that's been holding them back, but they're talking about it in a group with other yeah. people. It's It's quite like powerful to see I bet
0: and I, it feels to me as though um, that the the act of kind of drawing it rather than just describing it and as i making it more engaging like that would sort of disarm potential criticism or that you just sort of you step beyond kind of that sense of sort of verbal you know defensiveness or something because you just is that right I mean is that, is that kind of how it works it just seems a kind of a different level of engagement really
1: well, I think it always starts with nervous laughter, you know, when you ask people to draw. Um, and I think people probably transfer their fear about confidence into, I've now got to draw something. And we have to work hard to get people to draw. I, you know, it's the one time I really do mean it. We, we really have got to draw here. And then once people get started, I think people get more playful. So I think the nervous laughter turns into playing and people having fun with it. And then the noise in a room gets louder. You know, like every, you, you can just see like the, the kind of energy increases. Everyone loves putting them up. You're suddenly on your feet. Like I think people think differently on their feet and you're walking around. You hear people are laughing about these things, which, you know, these are long health beliefs that often we've put a lot of scaffolding around. We've reinforced these beliefs. They are unhelpful, but they feel really hard to let go of. And I think it, it's sort of such an important tipping moment and tipping point for people to realize, to Helen's point, I'm not alone. I can do something about this and you know what even the most senior person in this room has had to do this has had to draw their (laughs) gremlin and is talking about it so no one is immune and helping people I think also to let go of this idea of they need to be fixed I think sometimes particularly with confidence people are really hard on themselves you know we're all our own worst critics and people feel like oh well I've got this gremlin but oh, Helen doesn't have any, and that's why she's so much more successful than me. And I think there's there's something about everyone drawing their gremlins where you kind of create this levelless learning. We're all kind of here together experiencing something similar um, and actually having quite a lot of fun with it. Uh,
0: and just out of curiosity, I mean, because I imagine you obviously work with so teams over a period of time. Do people, when they do this exercise more than once, do they always draw the same gremlin or does that change?
1: I think what we find is we often show the top 10 most common confidence gremlins and people nod along to most of them because at some point we've all had a bit of a fear of failure fear of not being smart enough a fear of being judged so you kind of get a lot of nodding and then when we sort of say we'll draw the one or the one or two that really hold you back that feel like they've been with you they've sort of been your constant companion people usually have one or two And one might be something that you see a lot, like um, fear of not being good enough or fear of being found out, you know, the classic imposter syndrome. One might feel a bit more specific. So for example, one of mine um, is a fear of conflict. I really don't like people disagreeing, um, which is interesting based on, um, you know, what I do and the fact that I sort of try to challenge something very conventional. But the point is, you know, once you sort of own those gremlins, you can start to cage them. That's what we're trying to help people to do. We're not sort of saying you're ever going to kill them or you need to completely change who you are that just feels too too far from where we start it's just meaning that your fear of conflict your fear of being found out I don't want that to stop you in your squiggly career I don't want that to stop you from applying for that role that you'd be incredible at uh, volunteering for that project where you'd add so much value you know I I don't want people to kind of get in their own way so I think that's what that's what we're trying to achieve I think when we're caging these gremlins
2: and I think I've sort of seen it Like a long aha with a very long bit at the end. In that people, when they're with us in the room, they have the short, quick aha, which is, oh gosh, that's getting in my way. And then the messages we get a lot of messages from people after the time that we spent in with them and on confidence. The reason I say it's a long aha is because they often come back to us and say, oh, I've now realised how much it's holding me back. I was in a meeting last week and. I, you know, we were together with this person a month ago or two months ago, and they're like, "Oh, it came up again." And before I didn't realize, but now I can see it. And it's it's less that their gremlin has changed; it's more that once they're aware of it, they can start to spot the situations that trigger it, and then it's getting in their way. and that's 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 the tipping point for them to be able to do something different so i think it's more that that we the messages that we get from people that that awareness carries on and they just it just keeps going in those moments
0: i love that idea of the longer heart and how what you're creating is something that sort of it's an awareness and engagement that sort of sticks with them and therefore is more useful when they leave and and come outside that's such a fascinating idea let's go back to the the point you were talking about um a bit earlier on about how one of the first things you did kind of was to decide what you weren't going to do. So for instance, you weren't going to use PowerPoint. Tell me about why you chose not to use PowerPoint.
1: Well, I think we'd probably both experienced the classic death by PowerPoint. You sit in a meeting and you sort of uh, you see there are 60 slides to come and you think oh my god oh and you sort of that you know that sort of uh reluctant sense of uh the inevitable you know you're going to be walked through four million slides or you've got to create a loads of slides because you turn up to loads of meetings where that's the expectation so I think probably part of it was us experiencing that freedom where it didn't have to be slides you're like oh well what what could it be so I think we were just very excited to have a, a bit of a break from PowerPoint you know I worked in strategy for a bit and you're like oh do do a strategist love a slide um so you know kind of letting go of slides felt um just you know very very freeing um and i think also initially when we created amazing if which is our company um it was just an outlet to do things differently um you had none of the you have very different constraints but you have none of the constraints of a very big organization so we were just in experimenting mode the risk of it failing or it not going well was so low you could basically give anything a go um and that's incredibly enjoyable it's really fun and we were just literally making it up as we went along
2: i think there's quite a lot of alchemy in our partnership as well which makes it sound very grand but as in i think sarah will have sarah will often have ideas like i think the idea to draw would have been sarah's um my natural inclination probably would have been to use powerpoint but Sarah will have an idea. And then I think the bit that I add is the action. So I will have been like, oh, here's a few ways in which we could do it. And, um, and I, like I remember the first sessions that we were doing it in and I'd be sorting all the tech out and trying to get it on the screen. And, and I sort of have the confidence that I'll find a way. Like so Sarah will often be like, oh, I wonder if we could do this. Or I've, I'd like to try this. And then I, I will sort of pick it up and be like, I'll find a way. And we still do that all the time. All the time, that that essence of what made us different to begin with, we're still all the time kind of taking that. Well, oh, what if we did this? And like, I leave it with me. I'll find a way. Is very much our approach to how do we change the things that are very consistent a standard and a little bit dull to kind of use the word uh, from the start. So,
0: so I, that that sense about being very clear about what you're not going to do to be more engaging is that something you've taken beyond PowerPoint?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think both in you know the words that we use as sort of Helen described, um, and also not feeling any pressure to conform to maybe our competitors. We spend very little time uh, worrying about what other people are doing, which feels very different, actually, to some of the big organizations certainly I've been in where you spend a lot of time worrying about that. And still today, that is never my starting point. I never think, oh, well, what are other people in career development doing? What I'm interested in is what are people who are pioneering, doing things differently, or maybe have challenged the status quo in a really useful way? What does that look like, and what can I learn from that? And what we talk about borrowing brilliance, what what brilliance could I borrow from that? Yeah, there have been moments where you get tempted to kind of go back to the mean and sort of be very average, but I think we have really held ourselves to account to sort of say, well, we don't we don't need to do that, and we don't have to do that. And then I think we get so much space and satisfaction from it. It keeps you honest in terms of going, well, that isn't what we're here to do. And also you get confidence from it working, right? So, yeah, that sounds like, oh, we're so brave. I was like, well, we were very brave and we had very little to lose. I think you know it's important to be honest about that. And then by the time it became a company, actually, we'd got a track record of we could see what worked and then we could do more of it. We could keep doing things differently. Even when I think about back to marketing, um, thinking about things like our website. I don't look at the website of our competitors and go, our website needs to look like that. I think, oh, well, if we want to make squiggly synonymous with careers, what are we even trying to do with that website? Do we even need a website? You know, we just have so much permission to ask different questions, I think.
2: I think we've also got a really strong sense of self. And, and I have a quote that kind of guides me about running running my own race. I always run your own race. And I think for us, we're not trying to take established ways of working and for each one of them go, how do we do that differently? How do we do that differently? We often start with, oh, that doesn't really feel like because. So an example of this would be, um, uh, like end of year reviews or objectives, which a lot of uh, sort of small, medium companies would use OKRs. That's quite a kind of standard way of doing them. And that just doesn't feel like various. It doesn't sound like various. It's sort of not as warm and open as we would be in the, in our language. And so we have good growth guides because we, we want the business to grow in a good way. So in a sustainable, scalable way that we think is important. And we want the individuals in our team to have good growth so everyone has a good growth plan. And, and that gets into the language that feels like us and we want to run our organization in a way that we can also sort of talk about and inspire other people to do so it's more just starts from a conversation about what feels like us what feels like amazing if what feels like our tone and our approach and what feels useful as then sarah talked about that value it's very guiding for us and um, less about how do we rip apart the rule book and do everything differently
1: yeah, I don't think we're trying to be deliberately difficult. That, that, that might be how people experience us, I don't know. And actually, if you'd have said to me, um, oh, you're going to you're going to do things differently or maybe be considered as a challenger or rebel in any way, I, I think I would have been really surprised. You know, like we both chose to work in massive corporates. Um, they're not natural. You know, if you're a natural kind of rebellion pers- rebellious person, that's not where you go and choose to spend time. Also, that helps to sort of challenge that, you know, what does it look like to do things differently? You know, you don't have to be the examples that we all hear about people being, you know, very ballsy and very different. You can sort of do it in your own way. Everybody talks about values, but I think our company values, we sort of talk about day in, day out. So there's useful energy, action and work in progress, and they are a really good filter for what's right and what's wrong, what we do and what we don't do. So back to your point, Adam, around um, what don't you do? We don't do things that we don't think are useful. And if we're not sure, we'll test it. We'll be clear about how we're going to understand if it's useful. If it's not useful, we'll stop doing it. If something doesn't feel like it has energy, that kind of sense of momentum, You know, I would say the opposite to energy is dull. And sometimes we do things and we're like, that's a bit dull. We actually listened to something yesterday, an idea that we've got. And Helen's feedback to me was... um, Yeah, it's a bit dull. It's a bit boring, and we were like, okay, well, that is the exact opposite of everything we're trying to do. So we know that we know that's not right. Doesn't mean the idea is wrong, but certainly the execution of that is not right. So I I do find those values because they're sort of practices. They are genuinely kind of helpful for decision making. So I I kind of like the practical application of them.
0: Very good. One of the things you were talking about there, Sarah, about being a rebel, as it were, in the kind of corporate environment, you had a recent kind of episode was all about kind of helpful rebels, which I thought was fascinating. So this was actually stepping into the corporate environment and how you can helpfully do something differently with that environment for the benefit of, of the team or the organization. And one of the points that you collectively discussed was about conformity. And how conformity is this sort of force you know it's this invisible force within an organization and part of the role of a helpful rebel is to kind of help the organization move past that conformity. Talk a little bit about how what kinds of conformity you you come up against really and I I obviously am very interested in the conformity of dullness because I think there is a kind of a kind of collective dulling down of you know an agreement that actually you know what it's fine let's not push it too far it's kind of okay within large organizations what part do you think conformity plays in that and and what would it mean to be a helpful rebel in overcoming some of that
2: i think part of being a helpful rebel is about actually being a mirror to what's going on at work. So so I think we get so consumed into conformity. We don't even realize it's happening. So we don't even realize that the same meeting has happened on the same day, at the same time, in the same way for the last year, because it's just been put as a recurring meeting in our diaries. And we don't realize that, you know, the same, same length and the same structure. And I think sometimes just being that person who says, even just some questions, like what are we trying to achieve? How effective is this meeting in doing this? What could we do differently? Like, I think sometimes being the person who's kind of anti-conformity is just the person who's asking some questions because the people who are conforming are just showing up and doing what they've always done. And so I don't think it always has to look like someone's being, like Sarah said, I think you can be different without being difficult. And I think part of bringing the difference or just showing like a mirror to, oh, did you realize in the last like 10 minutes? we said the same word like I often play back words that people are saying that they don't even realize they're saying like we what if it wasn't that word what if it was this one would that change the direction of this discussion that we're having and and I just think mirroring sometimes is just a really really useful practice and you can do it in meetings like how the frequency of meetings the agenda of the meeting you can do it with language and the way that we manage projects I think Sarah I think you're very good at sort of being nicely disruptive (laughs) you kind of you'll often like pause a conversation that's been going one direction too long and be like hmm what if we just start from scratch with this like I think sometimes we just keep going with the way things are done because either people don't feel confident enough to challenge or they just don't create pauses like or prompts or provocations in the way that we're working to enable something different to happen and like I said I think sometimes that can be as simple as like the power of the questions that we ask how might we What would it look like if if we tried this approach, what could it be? You know, those sorts of things can be just a subtle way of um, changing the way we do things. What are your thoughts, Sarah? Yeah, I think particularly in large organisations,
1: there is too much. um, Everybody agrees and everybody agrees with the most senior person in the room. And and then that leads to conformity. So I, I think that for the first 10 years of my career, I I nodded along and did what I was told. And that's quite a successful strategy, to be honest, in big organizations. I think that served me quite well. Um, But do I think that is a successful strategy for your career and for organizations, if those organizations want to grow and do things differently and and sort of not just do the same thing, which very few organizations have the luxury of like, oh, we're just going to do the same again. Most people can't do that now. You don't want people like that. You want people who disagree. You know, we talk about with high trust teams, you have high care and high challenge. And I don't think there is enough emphasis or effort put on, well, how do we create those environments and those conversations where everybody is given the permission to share their point of view, to give their perspective, to ask a question, to to disagree usefully. And actually, if I think about now, going back to uh, my corporate days, a couple of people who tried to do that were probably squashed quite quickly because it felt like, oh, but they're, they're sort of labeled as kind of bad disruptors. And I do wonder now whether some of them actually were just quite good in at interrogating and asking good quality questions. Perhaps weren't maybe doing it always in quite the right way, but they're sort of, their brain was getting to some good thoughts. And so like we often talk about, I talked about it today with a group of very senior leaders about, well, how often are you creating an environment where people come together and the purpose of that conversation is to what we call challenge and build. So I was saying to them, if people don't ever do this, if they don't practice, they're not gonna get any better. So if you're starting from quite a low base of everybody gets on, everybody agrees, nobody dares do things differently. like People have got to experience it to know what it looks like. You've got to to have a go. And I think this is basically what happened to me. This is sort of an important turning point in my career. I suddenly worked for somebody who asked for my opinion. Um, and so, I will give Sarah Benison a good old shout out for that. So, I worked for Sarah at Barclays, and Sarah suddenly said to me, "Like, what ideas have you got for me? Like, what what do you think we should do?" And I was like, "What? Wait a minute, you you want to?" And I mean, she absolutely, you know, opened Pandora's box because obviously, then I went really crazy. I was like, "Amazing, I can have ideas. This is like me on my best day," and got very overexcited. But at that point, I was like, "Oh, that's how I add value," and that was definitely how I added value.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Let's stick with senior leaders. Because the, the podcast is all about, as you know, being more interesting at the moments when you can't afford to bore the audience. And you did a really fascinating episode recently about that with senior leaders, right? And the, one of the points you made was that working from home or partially working from home environment, the ability to impress senior leaders informally is much reduced you know that kind of little water cooler moment, or in the or in the corridor, or that kind of stuff, or in the lift. You know that's sort of gone to some degree. So now it's actually in more formal situations that you are trying to interest and engage. And you had some very particular perspectives on better ways to engage with senior leaders in those environments if you wanted, new words, to appear shiny to them. I love that word, shiny. Uh, again, it's one of your bits of language. Tell us a little bit about what you found, because you actually asked senior leaders, how should people engage with you, didn't you? And what, what were your conclusions about how people should show up and, and be more interesting to their senior leaders today?
2: I think some of the themes that we were uh, we got apart from people was... Um, like be curious and be genuine. So a lot of senior leaders were like, you don't, you don't have to be like the smartest person in the room. You have to be the most successful person in the room. What we like is somebody who is sort of practically curious. Oh, I've been, I've been looking at this and I found this interesting insight uh, we thought you might be interested in. Um, and I think that, that kind of ticks those two boxes that somebody has kind of gone out and found that and got in touch and shown their curiosity. And curiosity is such an important skill for organizations now. What leaders want is learners. So they want to know that they've got people in their organizations who are willing to learn, particularly outside of the area that they're in. There's a huge amount of value in a leader having a learner in their team, someone who's going to go out of the organization and find out new insights and bring it in. So I think I personally think that takes a lot of pressure off because when I was in large organizations, I kind of thought, I've got to be the best or I've got to be the best manager in this team. And, And actually think well I've actually just got to be a learner I've actually got to be proactively curious and present my curiosity in a useful way that we keep I know we keep going back to this word that's still useful but it's so important like how does what I know help this organization to grow that if you can if you can we talk about curiosity being collecting and connecting dots and I think if you can collect lots of dots like, oh, I've got this from this department. I've got this from what's going on in the industry. And I've been listening to Adam's podcast. And that sparked a thought that you're collecting all these dots. And then you can be the person that kind of connects them for your kind of leader. Like, oh, interesting idea that's come from a few places. It might be useful for us to talk about. Then there is there is so much value that you're presenting in that. And you don't you don't have to have finished a project or got it in on time. It's not about that. It's about how you behave every day. And how you're bringing that in a valuable way to the business i definitely got a theme when i was talking to a couple of leaders that 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 genuine proactive curiosity was hugely hugely valued and, and sort of shiny in a way that you might not think was shiny i think the thing i
1: heard from my friends and maybe these are just the people who are my friends they were like it would be really useful if people could put themselves in our shoes a little bit more frequently and it's such an easy i'm not even sure it's a mistake i think it's just very understandable I come to present to you, Adam, and you're my boss and I've got sort of senior leaders and I've really got to tell you something. I've got my PowerPoint presentation. I'm going to walk you through these 10 slides because I put a lot of effort into them and you you will sit and listen. Um, And the last thing I want you to do is to say anything. I just sort of want you to sit and nod and then just go, okay, yes, Sarah, well well done. Um, And I think if that is what your success looks like, you are setting yourself up to fail. I think actually what senior leaders look for is someone who understands, you know, like Tell me what I need to know with uh, be concise. I got that back from a lot of people, you know, be concise, have good clarity. So make sure you know, you know, practice what you need to communicate in a sort of clear, concise way and then open it up to conversation because, and this is definitely a mistake that I did make. I was okay at communicating, but I, I didn't want to be derailed, Um, you know, because you just feel like, well, I've got my agenda. It's too much about like my agenda and I think you have to let go of sort of trying to get a tick in the box for a presentation. I think instead what you're trying to do is like communicate concise clarity, have that conversation, and winning doesn't have to look like a tick in the box, getting the money that you were hoping for. A good quality conversation to me is winning. And that's also how we connect. We connect through conversation. We're not gonna connect if we just sort of do a monologue that walks through 10 PowerPoint slides. That's pretty dull. Thinking about it now, and as I sort of moved into more senior roles, you know those meetings that are really dull. And it's those ones where everyone's really passive. It's like presentation after presentation. There are no breaks. And it's just really dull. And like no, nobody's winning. I don't think anyone's enjoying it. Yeah. So I'm not sure why we keep doing it, but we do keep doing it.
0: So so uh, one of the other points that you made, I think, which I was very struck by, was this point about showing your vulnerability. So there's a natural instinct in front of senior leaders to not show any vulnerability at all, you know, but to be armor-clad. But you actually talked about one of the ways in which you connect is in fact issue of vulnerability and it it is um it reminded me of one of the previous guests uh Gemma parkinson who's a global brand director at Mo tennessee she talked about being in a very sort of senior kind of uh, presentation senior leadership presentation and she was very very nervous and she stopped and said i'm very nervous i'm feeling my heart going it's really going like this and she said it completely changed the relationship that she had a with her nervousness and b with the room do you get nervous anymore in these kinds of things do you know do you share your vulnerability in these kinds of situations how would you advise people to manage that because it it can be scary presenting to senior people
2: well i think there's some very practical things like so um when we are under pressure when we are nervous i think that can sometimes like it's absolutely normal but it can sometimes affect the quality of our contribution so i think the first thing to 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 do is to partly try to get control of it for you. I don't think you have to deny it's happening and you can say, um, I I really care about this. I want to do a good job, so if I talk fast, please forgive me, I'll I'll, I'll find my ways. I think it's okay to sort of expose what's happening. But I do think, like I was in a presentation last week and I was really nervous to your point. We get nervous all the time and I'm glad we do because it means we care. And I think that to me, it means one of two things. I'm either, underprepared and or I care and um, 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 you know both of those things I should tune into because I'm underprepared I should do better next time and if I care well good I'm, this is important I'm particularly for us we're working with people's careers I think I'd never want to take that for granted but I think there's a very practical thing that I always do it's going to sound so I always try to do a bit of box breathing so last week I was doing a big presentation I was a little bit nervous for various reasons Um, and I was about to go on stage and I was like you've just got to you've got to try and take control." of what you can right now. And so I did like a little bit of box breathing, which always just helps me to just slow down a little bit because I think you have to know what happens when you're nervous. So for me, when I'm nervous, I speed up and that then affects the impact of what I'm saying. And so I do I do what I can, which is box breathing, which slows me down. And then I'll get up and I might say something like how much I care about the situation or how much it matters to me. Yeah, and I hope the days of anyone listening but in
1: particular leaders feeling any pressure to pretend to be perfect are over because you know just because you're more senior that you don't suddenly know all the answers to everything and some things still are hard Um, and one of the things that I find particularly nerve-wracking is anytime I have to do uh, radio interviews in particular so we spend a lot of our time communicating so I enjoy that and I'm a confident communicator radio I get particularly nervous about because you never know where they're going to go I don't like the unpredictability of it they're going to ask me about something in the news I know nothing about and I always then feel a bit like a fraud ideal scenario of course you go well I'll just avoid it I'll delegate that to Helen surely that's what a co-founder's for but you know that's sort of not the point you're missing out on quite a lot of learning if you if you never do some of the things that scare you and I have found for that situation knowing that I'll be nervous I just write down three words that I want to reflect how I'm going to show up in that interview, and I would do the same actually. For if I was nervous about a presentation, um, I was doing quite a big keynote the other week um, in a different country, which somehow just makes me a bit a bit more nervous. Somehow, I think, oh, will I will I still make sense? I can't speak any other languages, so you feel a bit rubbish because everyone else can speak loads of languages. And so I just think, what are the three words? And you know, it might be optimism, caring, confident, whatever it might be. Just those descriptions of like, how do I want to show up? And I think that helps me to find some focus, not try to be everything to everyone and just sort of do my best to do those things.
0: Right. So listen, there's two of you. So I'm going to kind of indulge me. I'm going to ask you two different questions for which I'd like three bits of advice. So the first three bits of advice are give me three bits of advice about how to really engage a senior audience.
2: I think the first thing that people can do is to be curious, particularly in bringing the outside in to an organization. So that could be insights, that could be people, that could be trends. But I think if you can be that person, you bring extra value to a senior leader. My
1: bit of advice would be to have a point of view. So use those critical thinking skills. I think we all have, but we sometimes forget or maybe we defer to other people. Know what you think. Walk into a room or a Zoom having a perspective.
2: And my third one is to be concise. And I should probably just stop there to make the point. But I think <laughs> that senior people are quite a short of time, and so I think if you can focus on saying less with impact, I think probably uh, you'd be a preferred person to have in a meeting.
0: Terrific, terrific. Well, listen, flushed with the success of that one, let, let's let's go again. Thinking, you know, obviously that we are all about making things more interesting. What would be your three bits of advice about how to be a helpful rebel in overcoming dullness? within an organisation?
1: I think my first bit of advice would be, where you see dullness, practice telling stories about what could be different. Stories connect with us in a very different way to facts and stats. And though those things are important, maybe combine
2: them with stories to increase your impact. Um, My one would be, be prepared with some provocative questions. You know that, how might we, what if we, if we just stopped, what would you do differently? I think that would be quite useful in lots of meetings.
1: And to finish with, and given we've talked about sort of dull versus interesting, um, I think I might start doing this, is in your week, ask yourself, what's the one thing that was dull this week and how could I make it even better? And take some ownership for like, what could you do to turn that, uh, maybe even turn the dial down a bit on dull, not only for your own benefit, but maybe for the benefit of your team as well.
0: Sarah and Helen, that was fabulous. Thank you very much indeed. I loved it.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Adam.
0: It's clear in talking to Sarah and Helen, isn't it, that they're both people who intuitively move away from the dull towards the more interesting. And that for them, it's a continual process. They are always reviewing and discussing and pushing a little further because more interesting is a language and behaviour that, in their words, feels more like them and also because it's in the service of the impact they want to help the people they are working with make. One of their key values, they said, is being useful. And if you want to be genuinely useful, then for them, being more interesting works better. Look at that wonderful idea they talked about asking us to draw our confidence gremlins. The personalization of that confidence issue as a gremlin, which is a different kind of colourful character to the ones we explored with Gemma, by the way, and then drawing that gremlin alongside all our other colleagues drawing theirs at the same time in the same room in front of each other helps us just look at it together and just that act of looking at together starts to make it a little less intimidating oh and don't get me started on the confidence kremlin gallery absolutely brilliant what a wonderfully interesting idea there's so much to think about in all of that that it's quite difficult to choose but i'm going to focus on four things that really struck me the first is If you want to move away from the dull towards the more interesting, first get clear on what you're not going to do anymore. This is dull stuff I am not going to do from now on, because that's going to help me work out what the more interesting alternatives are going to be. And I might not be very good at doing them initially, but boy, will that help me get there quite quickly. The second thing that struck me was the power of changing status around very serious topics, because that works better and is more engaging it's more useful. So, using a drawing and a word like the squiggle, for instance, it's quite easy to see, isn't it, where part of the initial corporate reluctance would come from. Hang on, that kind of person is going to say, this is my whole professional life you're talking about, and you're expressing as this playful, fun, evocative word. But changing status makes something more interesting. It gets people to lean in in a different kind of way. And also, the power of changing the type of engagement too. We talked about drawing. Drawing's a very different kind of audience participation in this kind of work. Look at how that can lead to what they spoke of as the long aha, the realisation sometime after the actual meeting of how big a thing this has been in their lives. And it reminded me actually of Addison, the science teacher, getting kids up and acting out the behaviour of molecules in a solid, liquid and gas when they weren't understanding it when he was just presenting it off a whiteboard. That act of participation, being more interesting, being more involving, changes their relationship and their understanding with a topic that they are trying to grasp. The third thing that struck me was the way that they talked about using language as a way of being more interesting that hasn't really come up so much up to now. But it's reflected, of course, in that point about Squiggly as well. And how language and making that interesting perspective stick better through language is helpful because it's more memorable and it's more human. And again, this is in the service of being useful because they want to make learning last. And the fourth thing I really enjoyed was the conversation about conformity. How conformity is a force within a big company, and how dullness can be a kind of conformity. And that actually they talked about how to be a helpful rebel in challenging that. So be the mirror, yes, but be more than just a mirror. Being an obvious learner can help. Making that learning part of the value people know you bring into the room, and bring into the team, and bring into the company, And as part of that learning, asking questions that will stimulate the right kind of examination and push us all out of the path and the habit of being dull. But, they said, we have to begin with taking some ownership of it ourselves. We have to start with what we ourselves can do to turn the dial down on dull. Let's make this more interesting as a podcast from Eat Big Fish. I'm Adam Morgan. Thank you very much to my editor, Ruth, and to my producer, Ross, and thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with an episode from John York, creator of the BBC Writers Academy and master storyteller, helping us understand how to craft a much, much more interesting story ourselves. Here's a taster of John. You know, again, story relies on an emotional response. What a good antagonist does is it incites fear or antipathy or awe. You know, those are the emotions you want to create because then you will want that thing defeated and you want to make that battle as hard as possible. So you want to make the villain as devious and ingenious as possible. Yeah, and the classic way of articulating the antagonist is they they are an embodiment of the protagonist's worst fear. See you then.